earliest. Windows thrown open, room filled with sun and crackly autumn air that finally blows the last of the summer sweat from the house. Blue jays call and I throw myself on a giant sea of my parents' bed, listening to the reedy squeak of the clothesline pulley as my mother hangs clothes that flutter like prayer flags in the breeze. It feels like heaven this time before I ever knew anything of loss, before death even existed and everything was wonder. The clothes are hung, Pixie is curled in a patch of sun. I smell the Monty cooking downstairs and then the rest of my life. In Over My Head A momentary loss of balance sent me off the dock into water well over my head. It was all so slow, yet over in an instant, I remember sinking into the weeds that wrapped their tendrils around my feet. Anguished shouting made me look up at the silvered undersurface of the water, and I saw myself standing there among the fishes, green and drowned like a child zombie. I was not dead, but it felt like I would be soon. Then before I had a chance to fully grasp my predicament, a hand reached through the watery mirror and pulled me back into the real world where time flowed quickly and I could breathe again. I've never forgotten my brief lifetime as a fish. Blister Breakfast massacre of balled-up napkins Watermelon pulp soaked bandages I hate waste, spotting a spot of gray mold in the cheese bucket I resect instead of toss. It's just been so long since we had quiche. Lily's first white hair stands out in a dark crop. The shovel chafes from my thumb a flap of white skin, bearing a pink oval of flesh below the garden gloves. The daughter I dreamed of, digging from a snow bank of white matter, is about to come true. We call her Serviceberry, Naomi Mira. Crowder Peas Remembered picking Crowder peas for the first time in years. Dreamed about a girl I hadn't seen since her father passed away. Was reminded by a lilac scent of a garden I once tilled. All this while walking down a street I hardly know. Surrounded by people whose acquaintance I may never make. Saw on a spider's web the doilies my grandma would crochet. Heard in a dog's plaintive bark, a husky on my dad's farm. Remembered picking Crowder peas for the first time in years. The Old Main Drag The Old Main Drag, pool hall to turn around, is forever and ever lean, mean, and seventeen. The Old Main Drag, gasoline and perfume, is a blue-eyed blonde, in a ragtop vet, 1962. The old main drag, railroad to river, is a cheeseburger fries and a malted chocolate shake.
The old main drag, cigarettes and reefer, is a bare-knuckle brawl and a busted upper lip. The old main drag, Marion Street to Beardsley, is her hand on your thigh and her tongue in your ear. The old main drag, cold beer and naugahyde, is Cassidy and Kerouac, and you ain't never going back. The old main drag, post office to liquor store, is Saturday night, never gonna end. The old main drag, cars muscled to the line, is schoolboys pissing lusty in a prairie wind. This is a flash fiction piece by Dan A. Cardoza titled Ghosts in the Cupboards. I have ghosts in my modern gray cupboards. They dwell in my freestanding kitchen cabinets that float above the Carrera countertops. The onyx marble was cut from the castle-like crags in Italy, just a few kilometers from the quarry that birthed Leah, the dying slave and David, once captive all freed by Michelangelo, using a utilitarian wood mallet, chisel, and punch. Now, if Michelangelo can't convince you to believe in ghosts, then I have my work cut out for me. I built four of the upper cabinet doors with arch windows to display my exotic spices. Makes the selection handy when I cook. My reclusive ghosts apparently have an aversion to spice as they prefer to bivouac unseen behind the saucers and cups, doors without the glass. What I honestly think is they choose to remain captive, not unlike many souls who dwell in the marble in Carrera. All this intrigue started about seven years ago when I was washing a dinner plate and a glass, sobbing behind the waterfall of the Delta faucet, too embarrassed to listen to myself cry and to think she'd always said, Tanner, you are my rock. From somewhere near the shelf that supports the white china spewed burble. It sounded like a form of articulation. But at this stage, I was well versed at lying. It's goddamn nothing, I said, surprising the late quiet. I slowly turned off the water and carefully listened to nothing except my newly found silence. Filled with anxiety, I showered and hit the sack early. The following week, I hosted my granddaughter's birthday party. More space in my house. With huffs and puffs, I created tigers and bears and a lofty skinny giraffe. Even an intrusive 800-pound impish gorilla. A thought floated by. A good time was held, mostly by all. When they'd all gone home alone in my kitchen again, I imagined a peep, a squeak. Pixie laughter. I share their decibels with no one with ears. As they turn to, the years have drifted, as they do, into horizons. The grandchildren have grown from pet balloons to real pups and cats. It's funny how you feel most alone around loved ones. It's like you've lost something they have. In time, I contemplated that the hidden voices had grown more distinct as they seemingly rehearsed vows 
concatenated subject and verb. Then one extraordinary day, I eavesdropped on an exchange that I swore sounded like a foreign language. Short of completely losing my mind, I deciphered a whisper. Kanashimi, later Google surprised me. Kanashimi means sadness. I often heard them as a choir, like an unwanted songbird that's perched on my winter sycamore branches. Not unlike worry beads, their chorus repeated, Antagai Judai Kajini Watahi A Yahu Ni Narene. I focused on phonetics, investigated words, came up with, I can't be free unless you free me. It's difficult to admit, but I've grown to enjoy the melodic voices, extended conversations. It's become obvious the sprites mainly inhabit the kitchen, where it's warm in the winter, while I slowly learn their vernacular. I also learned the graceful grandfatherly language of daft. So to compensate, I practiced mindfulness. I became a better listener. And with all the changes, I made sure I enjoyed each day. This lowered my angst. Recently, I noticed they were less talkative, easily distracted. I've fooled myself into believing they were practicing Zen meditation and respecting boundaries. Like myself, they'd seem to retire at night early. More often than not, sleep in. I heard them as they rehearsed the word sayonara. We all know what that means. I'll let you in on a little secret. I've commenced grieving. It's something you can learn after all. The grieving is mostly for me, but also for when they forsake speaking altogether, perchance move on. My housekeeper, Sarah, deep cleans about five times a year. This time, she was kind enough to clean all the cupboards, including the china, areas I have neglected for far too long. We laughed at the spilled ginger powder and the scattered granules of Tibetan salt. She chuckled, blamed all, including the matcha talk on the mice. When she finished, the cupboard shined anew. Near the end of the day, Sarah disclosed that she admired all my Japanese dishes, especially the soup bowls. Ekru porcelain saucers at best drab. Wearing a rare impish smile, Sarah admitted to coveting my beautiful celery-colored Japanese teapot and matching teacups compared to all the other china. They really stand out, she said. In a rare moment of enlightenment, I said, how would you like to have the Japanese tea set? She stared and then in her Cheshire grin thanked me more than once. After she'd gone, I reflected. It had been nearly seven years since my Melissa and I enjoyed our last Sencha green tea. Now that my grief was finally full to the brim, I felt the haunting complete. Before lights out under the wise reading lamp, I paused and recalled when you said I love you for the very last time. You said, be brave, take the love we grew and find someone new one day. Since I have become a good speaker of Japanese, I am thinking about signing up for a French class at the local community college.
I understand there's a Franco group tour scheduled for fall. The end. Thank you very much for listening. The Gift by Thomas Heine. Part 1. We want you to have this. John's mother pointed to the crystal vase he had brought them from Europe when he was a student. We want you to have this after we're gone. John's parents often said things like that whenever he visited. What began as an offhand comment by his mother years ago had grown into solemn moments before the china cabinet. Allegedly, there was a list somewhere stating who in the family would get what. For John, there would be the German wine glasses, the carafe, and now the vase, all of which had been on display and untouched since the day they were unwrapped. John's mother went through the rows of knick-knacks with care and recited the names of his brothers and sisters. The only thing of value was a china tea set and she agonized aloud over which daughter should get it. John's father sometimes stood beside her like a witness to the ritual. John always played cribbage with his father on the visits. 15-2, 15-4, and the rest don't score. The rules of the game guided their conversation along familiar routes, and there was room between the deals to comment on the weather, the garden, neighbors who had stayed and those who had moved. After the evening's last game, father, John's father rose, went into the bedroom and returned with something in his hand. It was a belt buckle mounted with a gaudy roulette wheel painted gold, red, and black. I won it in Las Vegas. There's real gold in it. He let John hold it. It's nice. Take it. It's yours. Part 2. John and his daughter Alice left for the beach early in the morning. Alice curled up in the back seat and closed her eyes. During the weeks before John's trip to California with his daughter, he told friends, I'm taking Alice to the beach. She's never seen the ocean. Who can forget their first glimpse of the great ocean? And at six, Alice was old enough to carry the experience with her for the rest of her life. By the time they reached the state beach, the coastal fog had burned off, the sky was immaculately blue, and Alice sat at the window looking out. John led her to the <clears throat> edge of the sand where he paid for a day's rental on a surf rider. Alice hopped with impatience until John's, John had their things in his arms again and nodded to her that they were ready. She shot across the wide expanse of sand to the ridge leading down to the water. John watched her and could imagine the look of wonder in her eyes as the waves crashed. After spreading out the blanket and arranging their things, John joined Alice at the water's edge. He brought the surf rider, dragging it close behind him by the rope that attached to his wrist. Then he took it into his hands. A day at the beach isn't complete without a surf rider. I'll show you how it works. John waded out into the cold water for the first time in many years. 
He tried to dive under the waves, but the styrofoam board yanked him into the turbulence. John looked back to see if Alice could see that he was struggling. She waved to him. He waved back, and eventually caught a wave that took him onto the shore. Did you see how I did that? Uh-huh. Now it's your turn. Here, I got it for you. You use it. It's too small for me. I got it for you. I'll help you. John pulled the board with Alice out to where it was about waist-deep for her. He steadied them until they rushed out of his hands on the strength of a small wave. When the board grounded, Alice got up slowly and stood on the sand. She looked at the band on her wrist and picked at it. That was great, wasn't it? It was okay. Just okay? They didn't go out further the second time, but when Alice slipped off the board, she went down and could barely touch the bottom. She was still coughing when a larger wave swept her and the board toward the beach. John ran after her, calling encouragement, and she held on all the way. When the ride ended, however, Alice marched back to the blanket. The board flopped behind her until the rope fell limp on the ground. John handed an orange, handed her an orange as she sat on the blanket, shivering inconsolably and wrapped in her towel. The board is too big for me. She handed the orange back and he peeled it. Part 3 Perhaps John should have waited a year or two before putting Alice on a surf rider. But who knows when they would ever be together again at the beach. He was just trying to give her a good time, something to remember him by. John rolled to his side, and Alice returned to the water, still wrapped in her towel like a shipwrecked young thing. Alice's mother lived on a farm now with an architect, and they had animals and a garden. John heard about their pumpkins, and one time Alice came for a visit talking excitedly about how she had chopped wood. John wondered what she would remember of the ocean. Tomorrow they would fly to St. Louis, where her mother would be waiting, and he would continue on to Philadelphia. His car was waiting for him at the airport, and there'd be a stack of unopened mail on his kitchen table. He would make some calls the first night, and then go out to eat. He rolled onto his stomach and rested his head on folded arms. Alice stood on the beaten sand and watched how it goes. The water swells slightly in the distance, then falls from view, then rises suddenly like a mountain that curls and crashes on itself. Bodies in the water are pulled into the wave on its way up and thrown out on its way down. Out of the crash comes a smaller wave that gets smaller and gentler as it rolls to the sand. Alice runs toward the water with the towel stretched over her head and flapping like a magic cape. She runs along the water's edge, then turns and jumps into the water's harmless last surge. Alice takes pleasure in this and she shouts. The water repeats the sequence again and again, and again Alice shouts. <laughs>